Hey everyone, we're excited to get this episode started, but before we get it started, we've got a disclaimer. I know, it's been a while since we've done one of these. The views and opinions expressed by guest Dr. Andy Howard should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. And with that, we'll get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Between Two Studs. I'm Alex Stud. And I'm Ron Stud. And Ron, for episode 44, tonight on the show, we have Dr. Andy Howard. How are you doing tonight, Andy? I'm doing great. Great to see you guys. Wonderful to see you, as always. I hope you're ready for the Ember Round. But as always, before we do, Ron and I have to pay tribute to the official spirit of Between Two Studs, Malort. We're going to honor you and our sponsor by having a shot of Malort. Cheers to you, Andy. Cheers. Thank you. This isn't Malort, but but cheers to you guys. You know, Andy, um, you do live in the Chicago area. We're, we're, you live right in the city, in Hyde Park. I assume you've had Malort before, correct? You know, I have. There's a little little bit of a story there. I took, just for fun, I took an improv class at, mm-hmm. at a little improv theater right, right near where I lived in Hyde Park. And there's a terrific dive bar right next door, just like... If you like dive bars, this one's a great one. It's the sign on it says Woodlawn Tap, but nobody calls it that. If you're, you know, if you're in the mix, you call it Jimmy's. Everybody knows, oh yeah, Jimmy's. Mm-hmm. Everyone's gonna meet at Jimmy's. And Jimmy's, you walk in and the place just feels like Malort. So after the improv class, the whole class would get together at Jimmy's and we'd all have Malort. It was a good, good time. Andy, you have to take me to Jimmy's. Oh, you'll you'll love Jimmy's. You'll I will come Jimmy's. on down. I will come on down, and just for reference, Ron, getting from uh, where I live in North Chicago down to Andy is quite a hike, but I will gladly do it if I get to hang out with you at, at Jimmy's. No, we, we should do that. Take me to the improv class, and then I'll go to Jimmy's as well, because I like improv. We, we could go to the improv. We could see a show at the improv theater and go to Jimmy's. Oh. That's a great night. Sounds great to me. Awesome. awesome. Well, well, so buckle in. You're in the Ember Round. I hope you're ready. I know, you've, right. list, I know you've listened to some episodes. So you know how this goes. So, mm-hmm. uh, Andy, we tried to do the, the family tree thing before the call started. But explain to the audience, how do you know us? Okay, so my wife and Alex's wife are first cousins. That was so well explained. <laughs> I, I yeah, spent like five minutes mom. like drawing it out. <laughs> it's like, well, my, my wife's father's sister's daughter's husband right it's uh you know my wife debbie her mom and and hannah's dad yeah are were siblings and they so my wife's mom was the oldest of four and hannah's dad was the youngest of four but i i was interested of those four siblings those two were particularly close they really yeah really were close friends yeah. Well, and it's interesting because when my wife and I, when we first were planning to move to Chicago, we were not even engaged at that time. I think that we, we, we were visiting Chicago and you were really some of the first people in Chicago I ever knew. So you were mm. my representation of what Chicago was before I became a Chicagoan myself. So thank you for that. Oh, no, no problem. So, yeah. So that's that's oh. how it all works. And then you met. Ron, uh, at my wedding this past year. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, you know, I was looking at some videos of that wedding just recently. What struck me about the videos uh, that just that I took with my iPhone was the dance floor was full of people of all ages. I yeah. love that there were, you know, people in their 80s out there and, you know, two-year-old toddlers. Every, everyone was shaking their booty on, a, on the dance floor at that wedding. It was a wonderful wedding. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I, I think, you know, the DJ did a really good job. One of the things, in fact, I, I need to get our DJ on the show. But one of the things I noticed mm. that he was doing towards the second half of the, of the, of the playing was he incorporated the lyrics of, like, 70s and 60s music. So that appealed to the older crowd that could sing along. But he had a beat, like he did a mix, and the beat was more modern songs from the last 10 years, and that made the young people happy because they could dance to it. So together, it had this really good hybrid where everyone was happy to be on the dance floor. Oh, yeah, that's good. I hadn't noticed that, but you're right. That's a very, I mean, that's advanced DJ move right there. It, advanced. We're going to have to have him on. DJ Cruz was For sure. <laughs> so, Dr. Howard... Would you mind tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your areas of interest? Sure. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I've got a, a nine-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. Congratulations. And thank you. And I'm a, I'm a physician, a radiation oncologist. And I, we can talk a little bit later about what exactly that is. Mm-hmm. I work for the University of Chicago, and um, I've worked there for about uh, coming on 12 years now. So wow. It's a great, it's a great gig. Wow. Well, we'll dive into that for sure. Uh, equally mm-hmm. important, Andy, what are you currently imbibing in right now? Oh, yeah. So I am drinking a Great Lakes Dortmunder Lager Gold, Dortmunder Gold Lager. I mean, this is, so it's in Ohio. You guys are familiar with Great Lakes. Oh, brewery. I am. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, you know, Ohio Brewery. Actually, I have, I have a good friend at work. He, so I started working at this place in 2010. So he he went to Ohio State. I went to University of Wisconsin. So we had since 2010, we have had a standing bet at any time Ohio State and the Wisconsin Badgers <laughs> face each other in football, which they don't do every year, but almost every year we have a standing bet, and the loser has to bring the other one beer from their home state. And uh. to this state, he has yet to bring me any Ohio beer because the Badgers always lose. <laughs> it's really discouraging. <laughs> One of these years. One of these years. Alex has a similar bet with one of his friends with the Bills and the Dolphins. You want to tell us about that, Alex? Yeah, the quick story with that one is so uh, my – actually, he's been on the show, Taylor Lacey. He was, yeah. He's been on the podcast, and he is a Dolphins fan. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And so they play each other. They're in the same NFL division. So they play each other twice a year. And if the Bills sweep the, uh, the the Dolphins, I win and vice versa. And we have all these tiebreakers, right? If they both, uh-huh. if it's one and one, then it's like whoever has the highest record. And if that's a tie, we have like seven different tiebreakers. Fortunately, we've ever, never had to utilize them all. But all you really need to know is I'm winning the bet like five to two or something like that. Oh, and the, nice. And the loser has to take the winner out for a nice steak dinner. Um, so we'll go oh, to like we'll go to like bet. we'll go to like a Ruth's Chris something like that and the loser has to pick up the tab. So that, that's that's a good bet. That's good. Yeah, it's you know it's a it's a year long bet. So it's you know uh-huh. it's it's a lot of fun. And honestly, he lives in Boston now. Uh, I live in Chicago, and it almost kind of forces us to get together 
sort of like, all right, well, oh, yeah. you know, so it's more about getting together than the actual steak dinner. But of course, bragging rights are also very important. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Ron, what are you currently drinking? So I'm having some Knobs Creek again. Yeah I, yeah. I love Knobs Creek. It's a good solid, you know, so I've got that. And it's always good. What about you, Alex? So I'm trying something new tonight uh, in honor of I'm, I'm officially, as of recording this, I'm done with my MBA program. And my... Oh, hey, congratulations, Alex. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so one of my students in my cohort, I guess you would call it, I was chatting with him. He's in my, he was in my group for our capstone. And he was mm-hmm. telling me that he is uh, working on a team and starting a, a distillery. And I was like... Oh. Cool. Uh, I'd like to sample some. And then he got me some. So yeah. it's called Heaven's Door Straight Rye Whiskey. Um, I don't know all the details other than he gave me this free little bottle. And it, you know, it tastes pretty good. I mean, it's it's to me, it's um what you'd expect in a rye, especially it's a 46% rye. Um, so okay. it's definitely mm-hmm. a little stronger in the flavor, but I really like rye. So if you like mm-hmm. rye, mm-hmm. keep keep your uh keep your eyes out for Heaven's Door. So we love asking our guests this because we always get really cool responses on this. And one thing just to clarify, um, so basically for this question, pick any piece of art. And art could be anything. So it could it could be a movie, it could be a piece of music, it could be um, even a poem that you read somewhere. And if it resonates with you, tell us about that. And tell us about why it resonates with you. Okay. So I, I knew this was going to be one of the questions. And I have to say, I was got myself kind of excited about this because I had all these thoughts about it. So I'm okay. going to throw a few at you. Okay. Um, so one thing that I've really been enjoying is uh, I, my dad turned me on to this Wisconsin author. Her name is Quan Berry, Q-U-A-N is her, her first name, B-A-R-R-Y. And she wrote this novel called We Ride Upon Sticks. Um so it's set in 1989 in Danford, Massachusetts. I think I'm, I'm getting the name right. And it's about a group. It's the high school girls varsity field hockey team from, from this little high school. And they end up using witchcraft to win field hockey games, which is like a sort of a strange Ooh. setup and not the sort of book I would normally find myself attracted to. But something about the writing and the character portrayal I absolutely love this book. So, what's the genre? Is it is it is it a horror? Is it a comedy? Like, I, what is this? It's, yeah, no, it's good. Good question. And it's and she kind of plays with the magical. It's like magical realism. So, you're, is it actually magic, or are they is something just a little weird happening? You know, it's never like Harry Potter. You know, hocus pocus. Okay, I was wondering if it, there was like uh, it's more subtle. You know, okay, yeah. I was I was going in I was going in the nineteen eighties like sticks the band, right? Oh, or maybe ride upon the river sticks, right? Like I'm that's thinking a too. few different directions there, but still I'm I'm, I'm sold. This sounds yeah. really cool. Well, and when <laughs> no, you got really, it, it, when, when you got into the eighties, uh, I was thinking of uh, what was the Michael J. Fox movie with the uh, when he became a Wolfman? Is what he called Wolfman? Oh yeah, Teen oh, Wolf. Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. Yeah. That's that's the angle. Wolf, I, when, she, right? when she started getting into '80s high school sports, that's the angle yeah. my head was taking. So, well, this book. I mean, so this book. This is how old I am. Is I was a high school senior in 1989. 
like these these characters are exactly my age. Mm. So that's part of the fun is that you know these all these references to eighties, you know the the world of the eighties. I feel like oh I immediately I immediately know what that feels like. I immediately identify with that. Was this was this set in the eighties and written in the eighties, or is it like written more recent year recently? No, it's written now. I think it's only a few years old, okay. um, but, but it, it's set in the 80s. But yeah. it plays mm. to that 80s homage, and which is actually very oh, – you know, yeah. I, I don't know if you – I was just talking to my wife, Hannah, about this last night actually about Stranger Things. I don't know if you watched that show, but that has blown open this, this fascination and curiosity with 80s culture um, among uh-huh. young people. And and so it's amazing this like nostalgia. Even people who are – and Gen Z, who weren't even alive in the 80s, have actually gotten this real interest and fascination. One of the seasons of Stranger Things, almost the whole season is set in the in a mall. And it was like a brand new mall. And everyone's <laughs> excited. And, and it's just, you know, everyone's got crazy hairdos, right? Right. Oh, that sounds great. I have not seen Stranger Things. Now you're oh, making me feel should. like I've got a... So we should we might need to cut this this recording off a little early so I can get to that. <laughs> so I, mean, I, I didn't mean <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. So so but it, it, th- these characters were in exactly where you were in 1989. That's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that's really so. If you're looking for a good a good novel, Quanberry, We Ride Upon Sticks. That's a really fun one. All right, another. Uh, I've also been um, so my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I read a lot of books with my kids. I have read a lot of books with my kids as, as they were growing up. And one of the great, of uh, the many great joys of being a father has been discovering the whole world of children's literature. Mm-hmm. And it is just fantastic. I mean, so many books are written, you know, you can tell they're written at multiple levels. They're written, of course, to entertain the child. But there's a, there's a certain amount of like, you know, winking at the parents who are clearly probably the ones actually doing the reading in a way that's really enjoyable. So there's a couple, there's one called Those Darn Squirrels by a guy named Adam Rubin. I've Very read that entertaining. book. Have that's you? A, do do that's, you have kids, Ron? I didn't know. I do. I have a nine-year-old who turns 10 next, next uh, actually oh, later hey. this month. But there's a really crotchety old guy in the comic for his like, Those Darn Squirrels, and I love it. Yes. It's a fun book. Yeah, he, totally, totally. We, in our household, we make reference to uh, to uh, old man, Wait. old man, Finkwater or whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, that's his name. I yeah. have Something to like read that. this book because, uh, Ron, I don't know if you know this. Our father, who's probably listening to this episode, uh, has mm-hmm. pro- has become quite enamored uh, by these squirrels in, in his backyard. He feeds them every day. He's named them. Uh, he loves mm-hmm. these squirrels. Uh, and this has been a thing he's done since retirement. Is But this is, this is, it sounds like this is an old man who hates the squirrels in the, in the book. Oh, yeah. Well, sort of hates, hates love, love hates. Yeah, it's a, they're kind of frenemies. Okay, yeah, so yeah. I'm going to read this book, but I'm going to be thinking about my dad as I read it. He's the the. Is it a protagonist? Is it an antagonist? Who's this guy? He's he's a central character. That's a good question. What do you, what do you think, Ron? Ah, uh, it's tough because I yeah. feel like you, you like you aren't right. Like they don't outright say the squirrels are the protagonist because you use him as kind of the. He's kind of the bridge character that kind of brings you into the story because you as a human, you are a human. You're going to relate to him, but he's kind of got all these frustrations with the squirrels. But as it Uh kind of goes on, you kind of see like 
maybe they both don't need to hate each other quite as much as they do. Right. Don't, so, don't ruin like a any, weird gateway character. Don't don't take any spoilers, Ron. Okay. And there's a, I mean, and there's a couple sequels. Have you read the sequels, Ron? No, not yet. Oh, there there's uh, those darn squirrels and the cat next door. Those darn squirrels fly south. Uh, the fly south one is particularly good. Yeah, they're really okay. they're really fun. The yeah, squirrels fly south. But yeah, I mean, there's, I, there's don't... also a relationship with the birds that live in the yard, and yeah. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm just gonna have to read them. <laughs> yeah, 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 I highly recommend that. And then uh, last one, I was gonna. Well, there's a book that I'm reading now with my nine year old. So uh, my kids are going to summer camp, sleepaway summer camp, for the first time this summer. Oh, and cool. so we've been talking about that and reading books about that. And so my nine-year-old and I are kind of joint reading a book called Float, uh, F-L-O-A-T, by Laura Martin. And mm-hmm. so the book is about a bunch of 12-year-old boys, really, mostly about boys, who are going, who are going to a summer camp. It's a special summer camp for kids with disabilities, but all the kids have sort of, have sort of magical disabilities. So the main character... He, gravity doesn't affect him, so he mm-hmm. he tends to float up. So unless he's wearing like weighted a weighted vest or something, he would float up, you know, through the atmosphere and you know asphyxiate up in outer space. And another kid keeps catching on fire, you know, and not in a way that. Oh hurts my! Him, so when you say disabilities, I mean these are. Uh, yeah, they're real. Like, uh, like they're real. If yeah, they don't, if they, yeah, I mean they they could die from from these magical. Curses in a way, they're curses, right. but they're also, yeah. I'm sure, part of the story is how they can use their abilities, their disabilities as an ability. Is that sort of the idea? Right. Yeah. I mean, it ends up being a really touching story about, you know, about making friends and setting, and about the whole notion of setting goals, and uh, you know, and about how we judge each other and ourselves, and how we can learn to overcome those those prejudgments. It's a really touching one. Okay, Ron. Now I'm curious. Like, what, do you have any other like kids' books that you've read with your kids that you're particularly fond of that you think about? Ooh, um, one I really like is Chicken Track. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Oh, with Oh, I that don't one. know that one. Oh, so it was. I remember I read it when I was about my daughter's age. I want to say it was in third or fourth grade, and it's about a kid who goes. Um, it's like there's a contest to kind of go to every. It's a fast food joint but it's basically every one of these in every single city so there's like maybe 50 of them in every state you have to go to every one of them so this kid ends up um he breaks something he finds out the only way he can make money um to repay for this is for him to like go agree to go to all these places and eat at every single one of these stops and there's a um there's a weird like witch lady that has some evil magical powers and she's like cursing the kid. A lot kid of magic. And it's in, in this. Yeah. 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 But seeing that, but it was something trend. where I was really impressed that my daughter really enjoyed it too. So oh, that's and great. she really loves. Um, she's really gotten hooked on all the Ramona books. So oh, she loves yeah. Beverly Cleary, and she was kind of disappointed once Beverly Cleary passed that she's like, "Well, there's no more Beverly Cleary books. I've read them all." And I was like, "Well, that's cool, but yeah. now time to move on to Judy Bloomer, somebody else." But it's often I'll go into her, her room and she's listening to Beverly Cleary books, which is kind of cool. That is really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Children's literature is really impressive. I, yeah. It's, it's neat. It's neat how that's a, 
a world I feel like I've gotten to rediscover through being a being a dad. Cool. It's kind of cool because I I feel like as an adult, there is probably some stigma to like if you were just picking up by yourself. But with kids, it's just like, oh no, I'm like reading it to my daughter. And everyone's like, oh, Listen, that's fair. That's cool. I don't care what anybody says. I read the Hungry Caterpillar on the red line every single day to, to my office. <laughs> that's a solid book. That is a solid book. It's a very solid book. So so Andy, uh, just to, just to keep pace, I, I, I mean. Yeah. I, uh, I, I have to ask, one of the questions we always ask our guests at the end of the Ember Round is name a way that COVID, this horrible thing, this global mm-hmm. pandemic, has had a positive impact on your life. Mm-hmm. Ron and I started this podcast. Is there something maybe yeah. introspective, a new hobby, a new interest? What is What has COVID brought you that you'll take with it even after we're out of this? Um, you know, it's funny. I, My wife and I were talking about this. I feel like... Life before COVID was a little frenetic. Like we were overscheduled. We were doing a lot. One of the things I've realized about myself recently is that I I really am an introvert. I'm kind of an extroverted introvert, Mm -hmm. but I need that downtime to recharge. And we were doing a little too much before COVID. Mm -hmm. And once, I remember especially, you know, those early months in March and April of 2020, you know, I go for a long walk and I just get lots of quiet time by myself. And it just felt so good to get that. So I, I've i learned from COVID to, to kind of limit my activities in, in a positive way and you, get more time. Do you think them. you've become more introspective? I think I've become more, in, I think I've recognized my own need for downtime in a way that I, I didn't realize before. I didn't recognize before. You know, that's yeah, really that interesting because I think so often, and I think I'm guilty of this, that I constantly have the next thing on my agenda, right? The next thing, mm-hmm. the next activity, the next project. And there's mm-hmm. never time to just sit down and really evaluate, right? It's almost like you're always looking ahead. And that's not necessarily – it's good to look ahead, but you're, you're never like, – it's never like the, the debriefing. Right afterwards, mm-hmm. you're you're never having time to settle and and say, well, what was that like? What if I could do that again? What would I have done differently? You're almost just so prefixed mm-hmm. on what's in front of you that you never have time to look back. Right. Do you guys view yourselves as? Would you, if you were describing yourself, would you describe yourselves as more introverted or extroverted? Alex, I know you. A lot better than I know Ron. Ron, you and I just you know met a couple times. Sure. Uh, so I would guess Alex that you are extroverted, just from what I know about you. The short answer to your question, then I'll let Ron go. Is I am extroverted, but I think I'm less extroverted than the average person thinks I am. And the the reason I say that is when I socialize with you know I have a great time, but when I'm done, I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. I need a recovery period. And I remember someone once explaining that to me. They said, well, and this was their opinion. They said an extrovert is someone who actually feeds off of others. They actually get more energy when they're socializing with others versus an, an introvert is someone who there's a depletion. They, they, mm-hmm. they, they get exhausted from socializing. And it's interesting because yeah. I love socializing, but – is my wife will attest. And when we first moved in together, she thought, you know, I'd come home and she thought like, 
is everything okay? Like, did something bad happen? It's like, no, like, I'm, I'm spent. I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. I need, I need recovery time. Yeah. So I, I think I'm an extrovert, but long-winded way of saying, I don't think in, in the way that most people view me. I think people always think I'm on. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, it's kind of weird because I mentioned before we got started, there's another brother that we have and it's kind of weird. I feel like between Alex and that brother, um, I'm kind of the weird Goldilocks zone where uh, Alex that's not is biased. definitely, I mean, Goldilocks <laughs> implies the best. I'm just, I mean, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. I'm just kidding. It's uh, it if it, it fits, is. it fits. Right. So, I mean, when it comes to like, so Alex admittedly is not the most technical of us, right? You'll give it, you'll give me that, right? Yes. The other brother is super technical. I'm not nearly as technical as he is, but I'm not as, you know, illiterate as not Alex. technical as Alex, which Alex is, you know, he's not bad, but I'm a little more technical. Um, but I think when it comes to social skills, Alex is clearly the salesperson in the family. He's able to really go out and socialize. And I think he definitely has much more of the social abilities and graces that I don't have. But that being the case, I think our other brother is, is, is much more limited in that. So I'm kind of like the happy medium where I would say I'm, I'm kind of like Alex where I'm able to be extroverted if the situation calls for it. But uh-huh. I definitely come home and I need to be probably even more introverted than Alex is. And that's mm-hmm. totally fine. I'm kind of weird where sometimes I might just be a bit of a hermit. And it's it's nothing that it's not that anything's wrong. It's just we kind of everybody kind of needs their own place to kind of center. Yeah. Right. So. OK. So all three of us are married. Um, right. Do you feel like your spouses match you in terms of your levels of introversion slash extroversion yeah hannah's more introverted than i am but what she's very good at she's she's much better at reading people than i am Mm. and i think she can do a pretty good job of uh kindly uh you know under the table hey alex uh you know wrap it up uh she she can read a room better than i can and uh, Uh. i think she helps balance me out quite a bit that's I nice. think for my wife, she's um, she's even more introverted than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she kind of also helps balance me out because I think sometimes there is certain tendencies where, yes, uh, there's I can definitely see myself like, I don't know, the guys all say, hey, let's let's all go to Vegas. And I'd be like, sure, let's go. And my wife might be like, mm, <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. not a good idea. You've got work tomorrow. So right. she does a good job, I think, of balancing me out on that. But she recognizes that. Like, she's kind of, you know, she's even kind of indicated to me that before where she's like, you know, especially I think it comes to like parties, for instance, where it's like, OK, there's a polite way to be like, OK, I think we've been here long enough and I think we've had a good time. It's OK to go. And right. um, she's really good about that. So uh, because uh-huh. I think she she definitely gets much more drained than I do. So. I think it kind of works out really well. What What about you, Andy? I think Debbie is, it's interesting. Debbie is, she's possibly slightly more introverted than me, but she's also mm-hmm. someone who is incredibly comfortable in her own skin. Um, mm-hmm. So 
you know, when I'm in a social setting, to a certain extent, I feel like there's a performance. You're getting the Andy show. You know, you guys are getting yeah. the Andy show, and you guys are just blown away by it right now. I can tell. Um, but we're gonna have to go to break uh, soon. That's <laughs> that is how blown away I am. But Debbie is Debbie is just very comfortable being herself in a way that I I'm so jealous of. And so well, she, when we're in a group, she she's just natural and easygoing and and people are drawn to that you know people love being around someone who's comfortable in their own skin well um, i was gonna so say in a way, oh I'm, i was yeah. just gonna say it's it's interesting sure. because when you said debbie is you know maybe a little bit more introverted than you i i would have thought the other way and it's because not that you don't have this but she has such incredible confidence when she speaks yes yes and i, and I think that's what you're getting at but normally when i think of introverted people I naturally think of maybe a little bit more timid. They're saying things, but they're mm-hmm. kind of maybe pulling back a little bit as they're saying it. And that is, she right. has she has such confidence in 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 her life, and I, I think it's it's a that's a contagious energy in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I feel I I got very lucky in the whole marriage thing. I feel feel very fortunate about that. Well, terrific. Well, listen, what we're gonna do? We are we're gonna go to break, and when we come back. We're going to dive into Wisconsin. We're going to dive mm-hmm. into we're going to dive into your medical background, your interests, and and then we're going to kind of wrap up with uh, you know some some interesting dynamics. I know you know you've talked we've already talked quite a bit about your wife. She grew up Jewish. You grew up Christian. Very interested mm-hmm. in uh, the the different dynamics, and you're, you've already mentioned your children. I think that'll be a really interesting way to end the show. So we're gonna we're gonna take a break and we come back. We're, we got a lot of ground to carry. Really excited. We're having a great time with with Dr. Howard, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Ron here. And Alex and I wanted to take a moment first to thank you for being a listener to our podcast. Secondly, I've got a challenge for you. This week, if you could, find somebody who maybe isn't familiar with the show and turn them on to it. We'd appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back to Between Two Studs. We're hanging out with Dr. Andy Howard and we're, we're going to dive into some really interesting topics now. Uh, I really, Andy, one of the first things I found out about you when I met you years ago was that you have so many roots tied to Wisconsin. So one of the things I wanted to do with you, we've done this on a previous episode, and I think it was a lot of fun. We go through a speed round where I'm going to give you a bunch of, of things. Ron and I are going to rotate back and forth. We're going to give you like very topical Wisconsin ideas, concepts, or, or, you know, items. And I just want you to, in as few words as possible, ideally less than five, just give us your initial thoughts, right? It can be very short and then we can elaborate about it more if we want, but really just kind of quickly, Hey, you know, pro against, this is something you need in this context. So that's sort of the format. We're going to go through some Wisconsinite things and would love just your initial thoughts. And I think, I think part of the rules too, were. Yeah, five words to respond to it, and then we yeah. then we okay. kind of go five, into something a little more. Five words or less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm gonna start. Then Ron will go over the second. I'll go with the third and go back and forth. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Cheese curds. Squeaky, but addictive artery blockers. Wow. <laughs> Might have been more than five, but it's so true. The squeaky component is the most true part, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. that's the tell they part. They really are amazing. That's the telling part of a really good cheese curd. 
Because Ron and I grew up in cheese country too, Western New York. A lot of dairy farmers there. And you could always tell, you know, cheese curds. And there's a reason that it's hard to get cheese curds in most parts of the country. It's because the cheese needs to be super, super fresh. Yes. If oxygen gets to it, it it starts to get dried out and then... That's not so squeaky. And it's temperature dependent too. It's the... If it's too cold, it won't squeak. Right. Yeah, there's a whole thing. There. I've learned that, too, where it's like you have to set it out for a little bit just to let it get to room temperature, and then, then you get the squeak, and then you're good. Oh, yeah. All right, next one. The Wisconsin Dells. Uh, touristy, but awesome. Yeah, it, There's a lot of haters to the Wisconsin Dells. People, you know, it's, it is very cheesy. It's very touristy, but it is just so much fun. And for those listening, it's a huge water park. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like everyone in the Midwest knows about it. Although I've never Mm -hmm. been. I got to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fish fries. Uh, A once Catholic tradition, now universal. Is that five? Uh, I think it was six, but you know. But but A, we'll we'll throw it out. So, yeah. Once Catholic (laughs) tradition, now universal. I love it. Right. right. All right. Do you like fish fries? Do you participate in fish fries? You know, uh, growing up, it was something my my parents are not Catholic, uh, but it's just such a Wisconsin, you know, Wisconsin has a lot of Catholics. It's just such a Wisconsin thing. Friday night, you go out for a fish fry with, with friends, and it's it was, uh, I really always enjoyed it. I love fish fries, too. It's just, mm-hmm. I, I think culturally, just so you know, Andy, I think Wisconsin is very similar to Western New York in that... Very high Catholic percentage, you know, very blue collar, rust belt, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, probably drink more beer than they should. A lot of yeah. dairy farmers. And we had, we grew up with fish fries too. And it was totally agree. Even if you weren't Catholic, it was sort of something like well, all the restaurants in town. Oh, yeah. Fish fries, fish fries right. Oh, yeah. All right. Next one Cheeseheads. Inescapable. Is the word. All right, so I have a little story about this one. This is more than five words. Uh, But I had a friend (laughs) who was from Washington State who, uh, so I went to medical school in Milwaukee, loved Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And so I had this friend from Washington State who was kind of, her jaw dropped open at how universal adoration of the Packers was, you know, or is. She gave the story, she told me the story once about uh, she turned on, you know, the nightly news, whatever the local news at five or whatever it was. And the the host and anchor of the show, everyone's wearing Packers gear. And then the first story they present is about one of the Green Bay Packers and, you know, some charity event they're involved in or whatever. And then the next story is about some, you know, mass murdering felon. And they cut to them being led away in police, you know, in handcuffs. And the felon is wearing Packers gear. Like, literally everyone is wearing Packers gear at all times. <laughs> well, and it stopped, it stopped yeah. me there if I'm wrong. And Alex, I know, or Andy, I know you know this, but one of the cool parts about the Packers history is it's it's owned by the people, right? Right, Which yeah. Which is really unique. Right, I think the only NFL team that's like that, yeah. Yeah, they got grandfathered in. That's illegal. Yeah. Oh, is it really? Oh, I didn't know that. Harley Davidson. Loud but awesome. Okay, another little backstory. 
So again, going to medical school in Milwaukee, once a year in the summer, there would be a Harley Fest where, because Harley Davidson's based in Milwaukee, mm -hmm. they would host you know a big party. So people would come from around the country on their Harleys, and that week in Milwaukee, if you're you know walking through downtown, if you're sitting in an outdoor restaurant, you cannot hear the people across from you because all the Harley riders are cruising up and down. So it's it's a little obnoxious, but it's hard not to love Harley Davidson. Yeah, for sure. And that was actually the interesting thing is my friend um, who lived out there, his father worked for Harley. So that's the reason why I got to go out to the Wisconsin Fair. So, oh, yeah. Nice. Um, all right, next one. New Glarus beer or Spotted Cow? Delicious. One word. Just one word. One word. It's all needs. Yeah. It is. It is. And and Andy, tell me if I'm mistaken. I've heard this from multiple people in Chicago that they made some sort of agreement that they will never distribute outside of the state of Wisconsin. And so I, I think that's, that's true. Yeah, they made some agreement with the state of Wisconsin. So the only way to get it is you have to physically go to Wisconsin to get it. So. So I have actually, I've, I've created my own little network uh, here in Chicago where when I have certain friends that, that are going to go up to Wisconsin, they say, hey, do you want me to pick you up a six-pack, Alex? Uh, that's and that's good. a very known thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're great, you know, uh, beer stores right along the border because, you know, they know Illinoisians are, are crossing that border trying to get their fix. Highly recommended. Mm. Uh, uh, Oshkosh Air Show. Never been, really want to. Uh, I've been. Have you? Yeah. Was it, was it kind of as ago, awesome as I'm imagining? Years ago, I was like 10 years old with my dad. Because oh. my dad, is, you know, he had a lifelong goal of being a pilot. And it's a long story. He'll talk about it when he's on our, our, on our show in a later episode. So we all went and seeing the Blue Angels. And they say the, the one weekend a year, that the Oshkosh Air Show happens, it becomes that airport in Oshkosh becomes the busiest airport in the world mm. in terms of number of of landings and takeoffs in the world. More than Atlanta, more than O'Hare, more than anywhere. Uh, wow. It's incredible. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I believe. Next it. one. The mysterious beast known as the Hodak. Uh, Did I pronounce um, it wrong? No, you, I think you pronounced it right. I'm trying to come up with a you know clever <laughs> quip. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, truth suppressed by the CIA. Wow. Now, is it, now, Andy, is it fair to say the hodag is like the Bigfoot of the Midwest? Is that right? I mean, it's, it, it's definitely, it's a very, so it's, you know, it's located in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, which is sort of central, but very northern Wisconsin, central, east, west, very north. Um, so if you were from southern Wisconsin, you'd hear about the Hodag, but it was, I always had the impression if you were from close to Rhinelander, that was something people talked about more. And finally, the Badgers. Next year for sure. <laughs> Here's hoping. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, hopefully uh, your buddy will be buying you some beer. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So speaking... I love you, that. you made it through the speed round, and congratulations. I'm starting to think, Alex, this might be something we need to turn into an on, ongoing tradition with our guests. So, oh, yeah. Because it's fun, right? 
and it's a good way to kind of just oh, yeah, really get to fun. know your geography like oh wisconsin i need to go to the hodag right, right? yeah so <laughs> speaking of the badgers that's where you went to medical school right and what did you think of that well actually i I went to I went to undergrad at at University of Wisconsin Madison. Ah, okay. Um, my dad uh, my dad actually worked for the university. I so I grew up in Madison. So when I moved into the dorms freshman year, I literally moved like seven okay. miles. But I went so I went to undergrad there, and then I went to medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin, which it used to be part of Marquette University, and then split mm. off. Oh, I see. Okay. And that's what um, you mentioned earlier in Milwaukee. Got in it. Milwaukee, yeah, and um, I loved medical school i made terrific friends um i really enjoyed you know the whole educational experience yeah i i can't say enough about what a great time i had in medical school actually my medical school reunion is happening this coming weekend so i'm really looking oh, forward to seeing a bunch of congratulations yeah. oh cool yeah that's really cool so i mean I, I always think it's interesting when you talk to people who went to medical school went to residency like, what's the story with their specialty, right? And, and you studied mm. ecology. What was so interesting about cancer to you? Yeah, so I, uh, so the way medical school is structured, it's four years long. You get one summer. The summer between your first and second year, you get that summer off. And you can do whatever you want. Um, so my sister was actually in the Peace Corps in West Africa. So I went and basically spent that summer with her in West Africa and loved it. When I came back, one of my friends had spent the summer doing a research uh, project in radiation oncology, which became my specialty. And he kind of said, you know, to all of us, all the guys, the group of, of friends, like, we all got to go into radiation oncology. It's the best field. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, and then in the end, actually, I was the only one who, who did it. But it's a, you go, okay. There's three, as a rough rule of thumb, there's three basic ways to treat cancer. You can cut the tumor out, you know, which a surgeon does. You can give chemotherapy or other drugs, which um, a medical oncologist does. Or you can zap it with radiation, uh, which is what I do. And depending on the cancer and the stage and the exact situation, it's not unusual actually that two of the three or that all three ended up, end up being used in conjunction to fight the cancer. So you were particularly interested in the zapping component. I'm just using the, in the, zapping. The, the motion that you gave, the little motion. <laughs> little, uh, so you, I mean, it's, it is uh, a zap of radiation, right? It is That's a zap of radiation, right. Yeah, so the way it works is, so we're all surrounded by radiation all <gasps> the time, you know, just living on Earth and I know, right? And uh, who knew? So our cells, our normal cells are pretty good at handling it. So as you imagine the cell going through its little cell cycle, it has various checkpoints where it can stop and and basically has molecular machinery that can reevaluate its own DNA and look for uh, damage to that DNA from radiation. Hmm. Cancer cells lose uh, a lot, if not all, of those checkpoints. So if you have a, a bunch of cells, some cancer, some non-cancerous, you shine radiation at them, the cancer cells are going to be much more affected by the radiation than the non-cancer cells. So wait a second. So it's sort of a selective I think killer. I remember part of this. This is coming back to me. You got prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, which is part of the... Oh, look at you. Right? Yeah. So 
it's related to the cellular regeneration, right? Where during that process, it's maybe the normal phases wouldn't be going correct. Am, am I right there, or am I am I way off? No, I think you're right. Honestly, you're, you're sort of you're getting down to finer detail that really I have even gotten okay. into with, in my reading about, about this. I know when when they talk about how the cancer cells die, they call it a reproductive death because it's the next time that the mm. cancer cell tries to divide that's when everything goes kaput gotcha so andy let me ask you a question here this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek but it's also serious which is when i think about radiation mm-hmm. i think about how that gives people cancer can you like i, I always think about like you know you, you go to chernobyl right your chances of getting cancer are much higher right so why right. is radiation the thing that can actually give people cancer a cancer killer? Right. No, you're you're asking a terrific question. Um, so, you know, although our normal cells are pretty good at handling cancer, they're not perfect. So you're exactly right that normal cells can sustain DNA damage. And, you know, the vast majority of the time, the DNA damage from radiation in a normal cell either does nothing or close to nothing, or just basically leads that cell to apoptosis, to basically committing suicide. But, you know, in very rare cases, but not not zero uh, times, the radiation can turn that cell into a malignant cell. And it turns out that the risk of that is pretty darn low and so there's two, there's a few different things we think about with that. One is that the risk is, is quite low. So generally, we often think it's an order of one in thousands of patients who are exposed to radiation may end up getting another, a cancer secondary to the, to having received the radiation. So the risk is low. There's but so, also... So I just want to make sure, and I, I don't want to interrupt, yeah. but I just want to make sure I understand. No, no. So you're saying, you know, science has shown that... Yes, in, in getting cancer treatment through radiation, there is a possibility that you could get cancer from the actual treatment, but the odds are so low that it's right. worth the risk when you're talking about being able to successfully kill the the cancer cells that you already have. Right, yes. Okay. And, you know, nobody chooses to get, it's not something anyone would ever choose to do if you really had great other options in front of you. You know, you're facing a serious situation. So it's at a point, you know, in your life when you're willing to take risks to, to fight the cancer that you currently have. Well, I, I would think most people would, would be perfectly fine risking cancer in the future. The low chance, right? But chance right. of to be able to take care of the problem I have today. Exactly, exactly. And that's another thing is that there's a there's a significant delay from radiation exposure to when a person may be diagnosed with a cancer from that radiation exposure. So if I'm treating a, a patient who's 78 years old with a cancer now, uh, we, use, we often say as a rough rule of thumb, it's going to be on the order of at least 10 years before they would even start to be at risk of getting a, a radiation-induced malignancy. Mm-hmm. So they're by that time they're eighty-eight. You know, their things are they may have other concerns. Mm. They have bigger problems at that point. Well, and isn't yeah. it 
and um, part of it too is that with applying uh, radiation therapy, there are things that we know about, like for instance, the way that the particles travel and the level of you know energy that you're kind of dispensing. So, for instance, if you are applying you know radiation therapy to a certain part of the body, it's a fairly localized type of you know procedure, right? It's it's not necessarily you're just blasting it with radiation hoping it turns out, right? Right. Yeah. It's that's and we spend a whole lot of time and uh, and frankly a whole lot of money figuring out ways to very precisely target the radiation right where we want it to go. You know, with minimal exposure of radi- you know with minimal other tissues exposed to radiation. Do you do you Andy? Do you mind explaining? at a really high level, you know, dumb it down for me. Like I'm a five year old. How do you convey the difference between healthy cells and cancer cells? I mean, how do they act differently and what makes cancer cells so horrible to the human body? No, that's a terrific question. And it turns out to be a very complicated one. Yeah. So cancer cells, they're generally reproducing out of control they there are two main things i guess i think about there are there are cancer cells that are reproducing out of control and is that, i mean is that what's creating these tumors that sometimes you can you can physically see on people because exactly. it's, it's just so much growth that is uncontrollable exactly and, and it's so, damaging you know, it's damaging healthy cells in doing that right right and so it is sort of two the other part is that cancer cells have the ability to break off, you know, into your bloodstream, travel elsewhere, settle out somewhere else, and start a new tumor there. Um, so those are sort of the two really dangerous things about it. If you had a lump of cancer, you know, a lump of cells that was reproducing out of control, but it just stayed where it was, I mean, that's obviously annoying and potentially problematic. But generally, you could you could scoop it out, or you could have a surgeon could cut it out, and you're fine. But the fact that they can, excuse me that they can also spread elsewhere is what makes them so insanely dangerous. And that movement from one part to another, that that's when it metastasizes, right? That's what that term, exactly. that term means. Because yes. it's interesting, when I think about cancers, you know, they always say there are certain cancers that are better to have than others, right? That sounds bad to say, right. but better than others. And I've always heard, well, it's because they're slow moving. And is that normally what people mean when they say, oh, it's a slow moving cancer, meaning it, it won't metastasize, it'll stay regional for a long period of time? Um, that, that often is what people mean when they say that, yes. And there's also, you know, there are cancers. So, for example, a classic example is prostate cancer. Prostate cancer tends to be, it can grow, it can spread elsewhere, it can cause death of the patient, but it tends to do it slowly. Cancers of the throat, for, on the other hand, tend to be very fast-moving cancers. Mm. When you treat a patient with prostate cancer, you kind of have more time to get everything lined up and get the cancer treatment going. Cancer of the throat, it's kind of boom, boom, boom. You've got to sort of jump on it and, and get it going, everything going really quickly. So weird question for you. I know that there are cancers that are definitely very, you know, they, they definitely spread much quicker. Um, the cells grow out of control. In an average person, are, are there cancerous cells on a daily basis that maybe don't necessarily get caught that our immune system is able to take care of? Yes. Yeah. So this is a little outside my specialty, but I've read a little bit about this. And 
Yeah, if there was some, you know, urine test that we could all take uh, right now, all of us would be shown to have cancer all the wow. time. But the vast majority of the time, our immune system is actually able to take care of that those cancers for us. Very cool. And so, it in those instances, are the healthy cells able to control and maybe suppress these cancer cells from going out of control? I mean, is that sort of the, the thought? It's thought, you can sort of imagine that there are three paths that a cancer might take when it's, you know, when it's inside a person's body. One is sort of the classic where it grows and potentially spreads out of control unless the patient gets appropriate treatment to stop that and cure it and, you know, and obviously hoping everything's caught early enough for that to even be possible. Another path is the cancer could arise, form a tumor, perhaps even a tumor of some size, but then the immune system recognizes it and is able to fight it down. So it, it the immune system makes it go away forever. And then the third path is sort of in the middle where a tumor, a cancerous tumor could arise, but then it just hangs out. Maybe a sort of balance is struck between the immune system and the cancer, and the patient could potentially live, you know, years, decades, their entire life with that there, and it never actually causes them problems. Wow, that's really interesting. I think my initial thought, Andy, and, and I mm -hmm. obviously have no medical background, but when I think about dealing with cancer, now, you mentioned it earlier. There's sort of the let's let's scalp it out right through surgery. Mm -hmm. There's the chemo, and then there's what you do, with, you know, with with the radiation. Mm -hmm. I guess my question is: Are there alternatives where you you say let's maybe there's research on this being done? I don't know, but is there a way to say, hey, whatever in the successful cases where the immune system is able to independently fight back the cancer, can we, from a medical standpoint, help enable that, help enable the, the own immune system to fight off the cancer like we've seen in those instances that you mentioned in option two? Absolutely, and that is a tremendously exciting new area of research in terms of fighting cancer. So I, I don't know if you guys have heard the term immunotherapy, but... Mm. It is, it is a tremendously exciting new modality we have for fighting cancer. And so uh, what immunotherapy is, it's, it's these new drugs, these new medicines that we found that basically help the immune system recognize that the cancer is there and fight the cancer mm -hmm. itself. Uh, you can sometimes think of it, imagine Imagine there's a, a, a company, you know, inside a, a big office building and everyone has little ID badges. And so they're all walking around and everyone's, you know, there's security guards walking around. But as long as you've got your ID, ID badge, security guards fine with you. But then some evil, you know, bad guys get inside the building, but they've managed to come up with fake ID badges that are recognized, you know, that the security guys think are real. So they're able to get inside the building and cause all sorts of problems, cause all sorts of havoc because they have these fake ID badges. So this is a little outside, again, my total, my exact field of specialty, but my understanding is what immune therapy often can do is almost as if it takes away 
those fake ID badges. So now the security guard recognizes like, oh, wait, that's a bad guy and is able to take, take care of it. Wow. Yeah, it's one, that's one of those words you've heard, and I just never knew what it was. Go ahead, Ross. So oh, sure. I've got a tough, tough question for you. We talked about this before we got started. So I hear a lot about carcinogens. And I mean, my goodness, mm-hmm. I think if I go outside, I'll get carcinogens. I've heard that. If I drink water, I might get some of those things, right? And carcinogens cause cancer. I mean, alcohol. Alcohol, I heard heard it even, that has carcinogens in it. But then I also have heard about these wonderful things called antioxidants. And, like, I I go drink a bunch of tea, and it's like, oh, I'm all good. Could you kind of give me, like, the high level? Like, do I need to worry about carcinogens? Is it, like, the amount of exposure? Like, okay, if I go around and roll around and... I don't know, pile of, you know, depleted uranium, like that might be a problem or like, it, or is it more just like, go, go drink two cups of tea, maybe some vodka might help you. I don't know. What, like, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. All right. So I have a multi-layered response okay, cool. to that. So <laughs> you're absolutely right. Carcinogens are something that as a general rule, you should probably mm-hmm. avoid or at least not expose yourself to them too much. You know, all of biology, arguably all of life, is about adjusting your odds, adjusting your risk Mm -hmm. ratio. So imagine you're going to cross a busy street. If all you do is start walking across the busy street without, you know, looking both ways, your odds of being hit by a car are obviously pretty darn high. Now imagine instead of doing that, first you just look to your left before you cross the busy street. Okay, now you've improved your odds a little bit. But your odds maybe are not quite as low especially as you Especially if we're in now, Europe, right? You look, especially if you're in Europe, right? <laughs> if you look to your left and look to your right, you've improved your odds even more. If you cross at a crosswalk, you've improved your odds even more. So there's a lot of things you can do to improve your odds or to worsen your odds of making it across those busy mm-hmm. streets. So when you have a, a delicious carcinogen mm-hmm. like this lager, you may be shifting your odds a tiny bit, but you know, there's nothing. I don't know. You know, then you get into this whole philosophical. Is life worth? If, is life worth? Yeah. Is white? <laughs> is life worth living without some carcinogens? <laughs> Have you guys heard of this? There's a con- there's a really fascinating concept called a micro mort. Alex, maybe you and I talked I'm about this last time we were hanging out. Okay, a micro mort is it's a way to conceptualize risk. So a micromort is a unit of measurement that it's a one in a million chance of dying. So for example, um, I read a little thing about this right recently, and if, I'm, if my memory is correct, anytime you go skydiving with a parachute, it's seven micromorts. Okay. So you've seven in a million chance of that. A woman giving birth vaginally is about 125 micromorts for, for the woman herself, for the okay. mom. Uh, if she gives birth by cesarean, it's about 175 micromorts. I see. Um, so all, evaluating all these activities on a, on a level of risk. Right. So it's a way to quantify. But then there's another one. I'm blanking on the term for it. Having what, a beer, called, 50 micro. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Right. One. <laughs> but then there's a, another one that's like a micro life. And that is it's something that statistically improves your life expectancy by half an hour. So I, I'm kind of making up these numbers because I don't remember exactly what it is. Eating a plate of vegetables is about seven micro lives. Hmm. Going for uh, a run? 
maybe four. Going for a run is certain number of. I remember owning a dog. Each day you own a dog or a cat actually is about one micro life. Ooh. Is that it improves your life expectancy. Unless you're highly life. allergic to those animals, and they unless you're like minus one per day, then it got to balance out. <laughs> and there are some things that are actually both. Like, um, if I recall correctly, having sex is. Both oh. has a certain number of micro morts associated with it and a certain number of micro lives. So it probably depends on your age and is, your health, right? Like that probably factors in there. Right. Ah. Right. So it's, and if that's the if cause of death, there are worse, okay there are worse cases, right? <laughs> right? Right. Right. So, yeah. So if you do it, you have a certain you know chance in a million of dying. But if you survive that, then you've improved your life expectancy by so, so many So much serotonin is released. You feel better. Right. Well, Huh. So, so I have to ask you this, and then and then we're going to change topics. But I think okay. you have done such a good job, in my opinion, and I mean this, of helping convey cancer 101 to a, a non-technical, non-medical background person. Uh, I'd love to know, uh, do you, is there a book that maybe th- that is available that maybe someone I know on this call has written about the topic? That is an excellent, excellent setup. Yes. So a few years ago, uh, so what actually happened is um, I I was seeing patients in the clinic and there was so much my patients didn't know when they walked in the door. Uh, just basics about what's the difference between chemotherapy and radiation. You know, felt like basic to me, obviously. Totally understand why a normal person wouldn't, that wouldn't be, you know, um, something would be immediately leap to mind for them. Um, but I felt like, oh, there's so much I wish they knew when they walked in the door. Because then we could have a higher level discussion, you know, right off the bat. So I started ranting to my long suffering wife about about these topics. And I eventually wrote a very slim little book that's basically was designed to be, you know, I've sort of thought of it as like what your oncologist, what your cancer doctors kind of wish you knew when you walked in the door. It's uh, it's called So You've Got Cancer, The Super Patient's Guide to Diagnosis, Treatment, and Beyond. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's pretty inexpensive. Um, I wrote it sort of before immunotherapy had really taken off. I wish, I, I was just talking to my dad today, I should come up with a new edition that includes Sequel. more about immunotherapy. Because it's a fascinating, yeah. yeah, it's a whole, it really is a game changer. For and for us. all of our listeners, um, too, we will post a link to in the description so you can check that out for yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's uh, self-published on Amazon. It's not a, but it's a slim little book and it's, I like to think it's pretty reasonable. It's got some illustrations and stuff. Very cool. Well, listen, uh, we, we are running out of time, but there's some topics I really want to hit for selfish reasons. Um, one of the things I really want to talk about is you grew up in a Christian household. You married a Jewish woman. Uh, and that sounds very similar to my upbringing because it is. I'm, <laughs> I grew up Christian, married a Jewish woman. You have, you have kids now, right? You have two. You've mm-hmm. already talked about them earlier. How is, how is that difference of religions, that, that upbringing, how has that affected your relationship uh, and and how has Judaism, that religion, impacted your life? Oh, great. So I knew very little, actually, about Judaism before I met Debbie. I mean, I had had friends who were Jewish, but I, I didn't actually know much about the religion. 
And Debbie and I, in one of our very early conversations, we were talking about having kids. And Debbie mentioned it was really important to her that her kids be Jewish. And she, although I grew up, you know, culturally Christian, we maybe attended church on Christmas Eve. It wasn't something that was... Hey, don't forget those fish fries. Then the fish fries, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Those count as two micro-lives. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Right. Um, And uh, so, you know, I was was fine with the kids... Uh, the kids being Jewish. And then now we live in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago and we were members of the synagogue where my wife grew up. It's uh, KAM, Isaiah Israel. It's a wonderful community. It's right across the street from uh, the Obama house in Chicago. And it's just a really warm and welcoming community. And it's not, you know, what I love about it is the friends I've made there and the community's emphasis on helping the poor and sort of the values I feel like my kids are picking up from it. And I feel like, honestly, they're, if we were members of some great, um, you know, Episcopal church or whatever, they could have picked up similar values or whatever, but we've, we're, we're doing this in a Jewish setting. Okay, and one thing I've, that's really struck me about Judaism that I didn't know about, somehow the little I knew about Christianity really uh, from growing up from those Christmas Eve services or whatever, there's a whole lot of guilt. There's a whole lot of guilt and the whole emphasis on this notion that especially we Especially in Catholicism. Sinners, probably especially Catholicism. Um, we are sinners. We are, you know, so lucky that Jesus came and saved us all. Um, and Judaism... From eternal damnation. I, from eternal damnation. Judaism definitely has its quirks and weirdnesses or whatever, but there's at least at least as it's as I've learned about it from Debbie and from the, our current synagogue, so much less guilt, which is just a real breath of fresh air. I love that there's and not, isn't it like you get one day a year you're not starting and you at a get negative to spot. Restart like Yom Kippur, right? Or maybe right, yeah, Yom Kippur, you're, you wipe right. the slate which, clean. I like that idea. Yeah. Well, and I, so I'm not Jewish. My wife is culturally Jewish and I've learned through her mm. just, yeah, a lot of those similar sentiments where mm. it, I, I really like, there's a lot of very practical applications where like, so Ron, during that same time period, you're supposed to ask for forgiveness and apologize to certain people you've wronged. There's mm-hmm. no communication with praying to God or ask forgiveness from God. It's asking your fellow man. Uh, mm-hmm. And by the way, my favorite part of Judaism is that there's not this threat that you're going to burn in hell and shovel coal. That's what yes. I grew up with. You, you you either believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you're going to be shoveling coal for the rest of your life. And you know, right? I I found that to be pretty extreme. Uh, yeah, uh, belief. <laughs> Well, and I think what's what's and, up and, with that too is that so much of what we're told is God's loving. So okay, why is there okay? There's loving God, but then there's also vengeful, hateful God that is going to condemn you if you you slight him in the wrong way or whatever. Just gonna smite and then you the rest of your life. Right. You have to, the rest of the eternity, you have to pay for that. It's a really kind of weird, yeah. right? Yeah, which I feel like Judaism yeah. doesn't quite seem to have that same level of. You, you, so help me you do this and you're going to pay for eternity. Right. And, you know, being totally fair, you know, obviously Christianity is, you know, a, a very big tent 
and you know i'm sure, sure. there's you know churches that emphasize different things and judaism is an enormous tent with um you know various beliefs within it so um. for sure it, it it is just very interesting um it almost seems like and i'm sure someone who uh is practices judaism might disagree with me on this and that's fine but it seems to me with my knowledge it is more of a philosophy than mm-hmm. a religion that's how i that's how my understanding of it is it's more of a way to live as opposed to do these sets of things if that makes sense yeah i could see that i could see that and i kind of like that mhm yeah yeah so 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 but you already knew i i guess getting back to my original question about the the family dynamic so you already knew before you even got married before you had children mm-hmm. that that i don't want to put words in your mouth but you weren't necessarily going to convert but they were going to be raised in a jewish household is, is that fair to say that is fair to say right so we you know we we did we're not 100% faithful in this but we very often go to services on friday evenings and uh often on fridays we'll light the candles and say the little prayers and uh you know we i love the family get-togethers for the high holidays and for passover um so we we do a which, lot of that which for anyone who's listening if you've never been to a passover oh yeah call your 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 neighborhood jewish person <laughs> in your neighborhood or whatever and experience it it oh, is an awesome. amazing holiday that involves drinking four glasses of wine oh yeah uh, it's my favorite holiday it's better than christmas in my opinion so yeah any religion yeah. that offers four glasses of wine during a dinner uh is right. part of the is part of the is part of the ritual uh right you can't beat that. that i'm a fan of well and <laughs> Maybe four glasses of Malort, you know. Well, that might turn <laughs> off some people. But, I mean, like, yeah, even even my tax guy, and if he's listening, Howard, you're awesome. Um, he, he actually did a Passover Seder and invited my family as well. And we had a great time with that. Oh, wow. And to that this day, great. it's awesome because I remember with my daughter, she's got some Jewish friends at school. And she's like, oh, I did Passover. I know what that's all about. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's just a good experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Hey, so last question of the evening, and this this might have several follow-up questions, but this is the last topic. Andy, you and I, when I first asked you to be on this podcast, you and I were spitballing. We were in Hyde Park together. I believe we were walking to the Museum of Science and Industry, an incredible location if you've never been. And you would mentioned wave theory, and I was like, wait, what? I said, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about. This. Can you explain to the audience what this is? All right, this is my very weird, um, like it's one of those things where you have a, you know, what you perceive, you yourself perceive as like, oh, I've come across this amazing philosophical insight. This is going to change the world, and the more you share it with other people, the more you realize like, no, it's just, it's just you, like you, you're the weird one. Um, and so that's what I sort of realized about my, my little wave theory. Okay. So, but the wave theory is, I was thinking about, uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the history of science. And I was thinking about how physicists for several hundred years 
have been struggling with the question of what is light. And there are basically two schools of thought. There is a school of thought that said light is particles, you know, streaming through the universe. And there's certainly, you know, experimental evidence to support this, that it's individual particles, uh, you know, that, that we see that are bouncing off things that, that we see. There's another theory that it's not individual particles, it, that there is this, this ether that, sur that permeates the entire universe and wave it, and uh, light, it, it, all what light is is waves in the ether, are waves in the ether. So these two beliefs were sort of considered in conflict. And then in the early 20th century, Einstein and some other colleagues of his sort of showed there's actually not really a conflict there. Both theories are true. It's both a wave and a particle. And so, you know, you're, you're hearing about this from someone who knows just enough to be dangerous. But my understanding is that mathematicians have gotten interested in this whole concept of when is something a particle, when is something a wave. And if you do the math, it turns out that it's not just light that sort of has this dual nature things that we normally consider matter also have a dual nature. So an electron can be described as both a wave and as a particle, a proton also. In fact, larger things, so mathematicians and scientists have shown that even things up to the size of small bacteria can be described as both waves and particles. And apparently, it's actually possible that things larger than that are also waves and particles, possibly even us, but the math gets messy, so it's harder to really show that. Wow. So I got interested in this whole, like, what is a wave, what is a particle? And I, I think I, I was particularly interested in it because, you know, this is my day job. I fight cancer with radiation, which has this weird duality. Is it a wave, is it a particle, and sort of really what's it doing? What's the answer? <laughs> All right, so then I was listening to NPR, to National Public Radio, and they had some science guy on, and the science guy was talking about how, you know, all of us as we ingest atoms, as we eat, as we drink, as we inhale, uh, you know, we're taking in material that our body then uses to replace individual cells in our skin or our bones, whatever, and then we poop and pee and our skin cells fall off and everything. So there's this constant flow of atoms into us, you know, replacing structures, replacing tissues, and then the old atoms sort of fall out of us. And what he said that really caught my attention on this, he said that, you know, different tissues have sort of different turnover. So bones are relatively solid. You know, water, we're 70% water. Water flows through us pretty quickly. You drink a glass of water water comes out of you. Uh, that's pretty fast turnover. Skin cells are obviously turnover pretty quickly. But from the beginning of a year to the end of the year, a whopping 98% of your atoms are completely turned over. Which is shocking. So only 2%. Wait, so you're saying, just to be clear, January 1st to January 1st, year later. Right. Only 2% of what makes Alex Studd is from the previous year is physically still there. Right. So when Hannah looks at you, you know, in despair and says, you're not the man I married, you have to say, it's yeah, true. you're right. I'm it's not. true. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, not, even I'm not that guy anymore. I used to be. 
Right. <laughs> That's true by and, June. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, apparently the atoms that stick around the longest, you know, you think they're up in the brain of, you know, where, where our sense of personality is. No, brains turned over just like all the rest of us. The atoms that stick around the longest are in the enamel of our teeth, oh. uh, which is sort of sort of humbling to think about. Wow. Um, <laughs> so then I got, uh, you guys are very patient listening to this whole show. No, because, uh, you no, know what, no, I, 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 I was reading about wave and particle theory with Hawking's book, uh, The Universe in a Nutshell. Oh, yeah. And there is a basic problem where it's like, um, with wave theory versus particle theory, the ones like... You know, the more precise you try to get with measurement, the more difficult it is to actually assess what's actually there and vice versa. So, yeah, you get into some really interesting kind of dichotomies between the two. But, right. Right. Yeah. And and then this also got me thinking about waves like on a body of water, waves on an ocean, waves Mm -hmm. on a lake. So I remember being a little kid and you'd see waves coming across a lake at you and I would think, okay... What I'm seeing here is water being transported, water starting on the other side of the lake, and it's coming towards me. So water is being transported. And then as you learn about what waves on water actually are, the water actually isn't coming towards you at all. Right. Um, so visually, across I'm going to try lake. this. So instead of being like, oh, yeah. the wave's coming this way, right? It's, it's actually yeah. more like water goes up, water goes up, water goes up, water goes up, water yep. goes up. And it's more like an electron transfer. Where the electron itself, right? Oh, that's a great yeah, description. Doesn't really move anywhere. It's just very yeah. small, limited space. Right. So it, the energy is moving. The energy is coming across the lake, uh, but the water itself isn't. Um, so the water sort of gets swept up into the wave. It it does a, actually a little circular move, movement, and then it it basically ends up right where it started, and the wave moves on. Mm. So I was thinking about that, you know, if, you, if you're if you at a lake with some friends, you see a wave out there, you might say to your friends, like, hey, check out that wave, and they you point to it, but by the time your friends look at it, it's made of entirely different water than when you first pointed at it. Which is sort of like us, right? I mean, if we're taking in atoms and yeah. releasing atoms, you know, who are we from one moment to another? All right, and then here's the last aspect of the wave theory. And again, I appreciate you guys' patience listening to this weirdness. Um, you're, so you're making wave... me get very existential. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. No, this is we should we should have had something stronger than alcohol to really have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so a wave is energy. A wave is is the it's not water moving. It's 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 energy moving. It's energy going across the lake. So what are we? Are we energy? And we're we're not really what we are is information what what causes us to absorb the atoms we do and to release the atoms we do is is the information that's encoded in our dna Uh, our cells know how to build hands build fingers to do all the things that that make up our body because of the information that's encoded in the in the dna that makes up us and And we make decisions about our daily lives. We make decisions about what beer to have. We make decisions about who to befriend. um, Also based on information, not necessarily information encoded in our DNA, although a little bit that, but information that we've learned about the world from our experiences. Well, now you're getting in the free will, right? Right. Oh, that's a good, that's a whole thing. Is the data that is assessed from 
our past actions causing us to make our current and future actions. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> topic. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, what, to, as much as a wave on the ocean is energy, we are information. We're information encoded from our DNA. We're information that we've learned from our experiences. And, uh, and of course, the information that we've learned from our experiences is constantly changing. Like now, you know, you guys are going to go forward and your lives are going to be completely different because you've had this amazing conversation with me um, from this information. <laughs> um, and also, scientists are now finding that even the information encoded in our DNA, which we think is stable from, you know, when we're first conceived to when we die, even that actually has been shown to be, to some degree, in flux. Um, so if our physical bodies are constantly changing and the information that makes up us is constantly changing, you know, what Who are, are we? we really? Who are we? And then this ties in with Buddhism has this whole concept of um, anatta, non-self. The Buddha was a big believer in this whole idea that we are like the wave in the ocean that you, you point to and say, hey, buddies, check out that wave. But then it's, you know, 30 seconds later, it's made of entirely different water. There's nothing stable about us. Uh, so that's sort of interesting if you read a little bit about Buddhist philosophy. Well, so I don't know much about Buddhist philosophy, but I'll say this. Yeah, what, yeah, what you yeah. made me think about was... 98% of our physical body changes year to year. You talk about how mm -hmm. talk about how our DNA changes over time. And mm -hmm. what I start wondering is what sticks with you the longest? And what sticks with us the longest, my immediate thought is my memories, my lessons, things mm -hmm. I've learned from my parents. And well, what did my parents learn? They learned from their parents. Right. So and so we think about what we learn from, from um, we, we think about DNA and, and my ancestral uh, physical components that, I, that, that, that have come down, you know, hundreds of generations and have created who I am today and the way I think today. But is it, is it more so the DNA? I guess we're getting into a nurture versus nature conversation, right? The conversations right. that have, that have, that have percolated down from generation to generation from a hundred generations up have, have resulted in subconsciously some of the, the way as I think, right? Well, right. well, there's that, but then correct me if I'm wrong on this, but one of the things that has been interesting that I think you were hinting at is that recent research has actually shown that when you are infected by several viri, for instance, there is an exchange of genetic material. So your DNA will actually adjust and modify whenever you get sick as well. So you're no longer the right. same exact being you were prior to your exposure. So it's... So does that mean that the statement that whatever whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger is actually true? <laughs> you know, I don't know about that one. That is a good a question, though, but you're definitely, it definitely changes yeah. you. Yeah. And then, and then there's that whole concept... You know, there's that whole idea that matter and energy can be, you know, one can go into the other, one could be transformed to the other by, you know, that E equals MC squared. But really, whatever you call matter slash energy, it can't be destroyed. You know, basically, whatever matter energy was present at the Big Bang is still with us and will always be with us. I think there's actually a little controversy about that around 
black holes. I'm not totally sure about that. Well, Andy, but I know I'm totally it's totally unrelated, but I've been saying that for yeah. years. I've been saying, well, if matter's never created or destroyed, then what makes up Andy Howard and what makes up Ron Studd and what makes up Alex said is material that is 10 billion years old. Sure. Right. I, I should yeah. have been able to drink before I was 21 years old out of my mother's <laughs> womb because the, the material that makes up Alex Studd is 10 billion years old. Oh, and okay. And what I'm about to say even strengthens that argument even more is that apparently information theorists say think the same thing could be said of information. Information cannot be created or destroyed. Oh, not that. Uh, I've, I've never heard, heard, I've, that, I've heard one that before. Where there's also and you're so saying there's the information. no you're saying there's no original idea. Well, I mean that's a that's it's a I, p- fascinating potentially. Well, I think the, the way I've heard um, it and is that like for instance. Uh, so let's say New York Times puts out a crossword puzzle today, right? I want to uh-huh. say that they've done research that basically indicates that a day or two after, there is a higher success rate with completing that crossword puzzle, and it's kind of assumed more or less, it, outside of removing all of the factors that you would normally think of, there is some kind of indication that there is a cultural larger knowledge set that is more or less shared across the community, oh. which is kind of weird. Wow. Wow. I hadn't heard that. That's yeah. awesome. You're saying, I'm, I, you're, I just want to make sure I understand. You're saying uh, I have people in my life directly or indirectly that have solved this puzzle. It's now being used in their vernacular because they just solved the puzzle. And so oh. all of a sudden I am able to, hear it i'm able to solve somehow you're able to am i going in the right direction somehow you're able to solve it and it's more or less a theory that once it's kind of become in the collective knowledge base once it's in the ether there is some kind of ability to kind of pull it down faster i mean i (laughs) i'll have to find the research this this conversation took a strange detour about 15 minutes ago and i love it (laughs) I mean, it actually kind of goes back to almost to what we were talking about Judaism, you know, when God's, yeah. if God's first words are let there be light, are we all, if if all information has always been there, are we all manifestations of the initial whisperings of God? Who knows? It's all wave Maybe theory, man. Really getting it's out all there. waves. Yeah, it's all waves. I, I think knows? we have to end the episode with that one. I don't know, Andy, I mean, you I mean, said... Just... <laughs> I don't know where to caveat. go from there. I, I'm 100% sure that there are actual real information theorists and physicists who are listening to this right now who are tearing their hair out being like in you know jaws dropped open at how wrong everything i've just said is but it's they can email us if they have problems a, <laughs> yeah and you know what if you're really that much of an expert on the topic i'm on the show I'd love to have you on the show right oh yeah for sure so andy this has been an absolute delight thank you so oh. much for being on the show and uh yeah we'll make sure to post information about your book and uh, again, really appreciate you uh, taking your time for uh, for us in between two studs. Thank you. No, oh, thank you guys. Honestly, I, I love this conversation. And uh, yeah, I love your guys' podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.